Good morning, Taoiseach, uh, distinguished morning. guests here with us uh, today. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for, for joining us. I, I think um, sometimes it can be hard to fully capture the total transformation of Ireland in the last 50 years, which has partly been driven by our EU membership and other aspects coinciding with our EU, EU membership. Um, to a great extent, the economic transformation we can kind of all understand. There are those trade statistics, production, but I think sometimes these types of interviews are really essential in terms of painting the political and social transformation of Ireland, recording the, the historical memory um, to, to really capture what, what the enormity of the transformation is. And I want to begin this morning by asking you about when European citizenship and European identity developed for you. Because in, in all of the series of, of podcasts in, in the past, We've talked to Tishig, who speak about that moment when Ireland joined the European Economic Community. But you were born into the European Economic Community, and that's actually quite a, a different thing. So for, for you, when did that begin to crystallise? Yeah, so that, that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm under 50, so I'm born, born <laughs> European. Um, was born after Ireland joined the, what was then, then the European Economic Community. Um, I have to, have to sadly admit, because I was interested in politics as a... <laughs> As a, um, uh, as, as a child, um, I do have a vague recollection of discussions around the Single European Act and whether or not a referendum was required. But that must have been 1986, so I probably was about seven years old at the time, but <laughs> maybe, maybe wouldn't have fully understood what that meant. I think Arthur Fitzgerald was probably teaching at, at the time. Um, and I have a vague recollection that I don't think Charlie Hawley was against the Single European Act or anything. I'm sure they were in favour of it, but you know, I might have got, got all that, all those thoughts mixed in with the Anglo-Irish Agreement and so on. But definitely for me, it was more. It, it was it was 1992. You know, the awareness that the single market was going to happen and what it meant. Um, I, I remember the 48-hour rule going to Northern Ireland, for example. Um, you know that you couldn't. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of a shopping rule. Some people remember it, but you couldn't bring certain goods back. So people often forget that 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 the the most of the elimination of the border between North and South was not the Good Friday Agreement, it was the Single European Act uh, which, which, which preceded it. Um, um, so re remember that happening and rem remember the Delora Commission. And I, I'm actually in awe of the politicians of that time, both those who brought about the Single European Act and then those who brought about the Euro subsequently. Like These were huge projects and I don't think we even fully appreciated at the time what it would mean to have those freedoms, to be able to live, work, study, and do business in any part of the European Union from Dublin to Athens. And it's an extraordinary thing. And uh, um, I'm not sure we fully appreciate that level of personal freedom that it gives us to be able to study in Paris, work in Berlin, uh, go on holidays in Lisbon, and it's nobody's business but your own. And that's what that Burgundy passport means. Actually, I'm going to kind of. What for you is the most significant change that has happened? Then is is it that freedom of movement, yeah. um, the ability to, to just travel the continent? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 different for different people, and of course the economics is really important. We were a country of net outward migration for most of our history, certainly for hundreds of years. Brief period in the 60s where that wasn't true. Um, you know, the economic transformation for Ireland means that we've now more than five million people living in the state. We, we all know the value of the economic transformation. Um, but I think for me, you know, as somebody who believes in personal liberty and personal freedoms, um, the freedoms that that European citizenship gives you is enormous. You know, and it's not just about being able to 
you know, live, work, study, do business in any EU country. It's also the kind of rights that come with being an EU citizen um, that member states uh, can't and should not trample on. Um, and I know there are issues around the rule of law and some of that in some European countries, but in, in the main, that's, that's the case. So, you know, whether it's around, um, you know, equal pay for equal work, whether it's around non-discrimination in the workplace, uh, all those things are under, underpinned by our European citizenship. Um, and it's a really valuable thing. And I don't think it'll come as any great surprise to uh, anybody in, in the room having heard that you remember the Single European Act. That's very impressive, it's if, very, I it's a bit sad. <laughs> if I may say. I, I, I also remember Italia 19. <laughs> <laughs> World Cup and all that. Um, you were very involved with the youth wing of the European People's Party mm, yeah. uh, at quite an early point. And how important, what, what drew you into to, um, that, that aspect of politics and, and how important was it for you in your political development? Yes, yeah, so, so I, I, you know, I got involved in, in party politics for real when I went to college, when I went to Trinity down the road and joined the local branch of, of, of Fine Gael, or Young Fine Gael. And one of the things I kind of got to do was to join the International mm -hmm. Committee and probably three or four times a year uh, attend um, seminars in other parts of Europe with our sister organizations. And it's actually, I think, I think it's probably the same for the Liberals and Socialists and others and the Greens, um, but it's certainly a real strength that I think uh, EPP has, um, that we link up at party level, at youth level, at women level, at all sorts of different groups. It's not just the politicians, it's the different levels of the party as well, the, the councillors too. Um, and that was, that was a really formative experience for me because you know, we don't do enough of this in Ireland. It, like we're, we're, we, sometimes we're actually quite insular yep. and we don't realise that many of the problems that we face in Ireland are faced in other countries. And it's interesting to see how those same problems take a different form and what the solutions have, the solutions have been tried and failed in other countries. You know, so much is just, it's much the same, quite frankly. And then to get a sense from other political parties, how they were organised, how they worked, how their elections operated. Um, so, you know, it, it was very much that kind of travel broadens the mind uh, idea. And I had this wonderful opportunity four times a year to travel to these European meetings and to get a sense of how Europe works and sometimes doesn't work. Um, and, uh, and you know, you know, I made contacts at that time that are still valuable now. So just to give one small example, um, the president of the European Parliament. That's Roberta, exactly where Roberta I was Metzola. going to go with this. We, we, yes, we were born on the same <laughs> yeah. day. Oh, and, there you go. Uh, and she was, she was. I think she was president. She was certainly vice president of 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 the EPS, of the EPP students oh, at the time when I was vice president of EPP youth. So, you know, we know each other going back that far. You know, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, chief of staff, prime minister of Greece, was one of one of the members of our board too. It's it's you know so you do kind of run into the same people. And even at, even at party leader level now, um, we meet as party leaders before European Council. Uh, so during my two and a half year sojourn as, as Tonishta, I was still meeting the EPP Prime Ministers and was getting to know people who have now just become EPP Prime Ministers. So say, you know, Petri Orpo is gonna be the Prime Minister in Finland, or, you know, uh, the new um, Ulf, who's the new Prime Minister in, in Sweden. I would have been meeting them for two years before they became prime minister, and 
it's, 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 it's very hard to quantify the value of those yeah, things, but they the, really are valuable. The value of that network, that ability to informally speak with people who are, who are making decisions, do you think we, we know enough about that in Ireland, in, in the kind of political system? Do we, do we value it enough? I, 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 I don't think... Well, look, it's, it's not for the general public yeah. to, to necessarily have to be bothered about these things, but so much of what we do... And look, it must be the same in business, it must be the same in other walks of life. Interpersonal relationships are really important. So there's the kind of get to know you phase and the get to trust you phase. If you can have all that done yep. by the time your counterpart's all ready, that makes a big difference. And unfortunately, that's, again, one of the, one of the tragedies of Brexit, yes. is that we're not meeting our counterparts uh, four or five times a year uh, in those European settings. Uh, so, you, you know, th there would have been a time when um, a teacher and a prime minister would probably have known each other previously as justice ministers or finance ministers mm -hmm. or, or whatevers, and that that doesn't happen now, and uh, and uh, that probably won't happen again unless we can find a new mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that's I think and we've got an important part of the British-Irish relationship to find a new mechanism by which we can have, um, you know so much twice a year or something like that. Yeah, I'll certainly come back to that point again. Can I stick with the European People's Party and Fine Gael to, mm. for a minute? I mean, the research in Ireland really says Fine Gael is the most pro-European of a very pro-European mm. bunch of uh, political parties um, that have led the state uh, and our membership of the, the European Union. To what extent do you think membership of the European People's Party um, you know, is, is an important core of that kind of pro-European Identity is, and is it still important for Fine Gael um, in in Europe? Uh, yeah, I think I think it is. You know, we serve our serve our own members all the time, and um, you know, a very strong sense of uh, being pro-European and uh, enthusiasm for greater integration. You, you know, one of the areas that I, I think we've kind of. Um, led on in recent years and other parties are coming around and I welcome that is, is, is that while we're not going to join NATO we do want to be part of um, European defence and security arrangements and uh, um, we've held the view for a long time that Ireland should be involved in PESCO which is the structured cooperation around security and defence and um, we shouldn't be bound by the triple lock and I'm, I'm encouraged to see that's a position we've held for ages, you know, 10, 15 years, and I'm encouraged to see that other parties are now moving in that direction. And perhaps we might stick with that for, for a moment. Um, the kind of politics of the continent was fractured by the, uh, the, the, the war in Ukraine, and, you know, we're seeing the ramifications of, of that. What's your assessment of where, maybe you might start with the members of Fine Gael, uh, because that is a recurring mm. conversation that's been happening in Fine Gael for, for some time. Um, to, to what extent is there a, a kind of greater realisation that the world is changing and that perhaps notions of our neutrality um, probably need to evolve with that? I think for everyone it's made us uh, think again about uh, defence and security and security yeah. threats. You know, new, you know, Ukraine is a neutral country yeah. and it got invaded. Uh, Ukraine wants to be in NATO so it can't be invaded. You know, so uh, it may have made people for the first time consider the possibility that being part of a military alliance gives you protection and prevents war, mm -hmm. not the reverse. Um, 
Now, anyone who knows their history will know that neutral Belgium was invaded a mm. uh, hundred years ago. So, uh, um, you know, neutral countries get invaded all the time, unfortunately. Um, what protects us is probably not our neutrality so much as our geography, uh, that we're in the Western Atlantic and we've Britain on one side and America uh, on the other. I think the other thing that people are more aware of now is that um, security threats are hybrid. Yes. You know, we've moved, you know, we had the traditional invasion of people on horses with spears that moved on to trenches and guns, moved on to um, other forms of, of, of military conflict with the development of, of air forces. Um, now we have uh, international terrorism, cyber attacks, sabotage. All those things existed in the past, uh, but they're much more prevalent now. And you know, people would have seen the effect of the cyber attack on, on, on the HSE. So, we need to be smarter about those kind of risks. And that does involve, I think, cooperation with NATO partners through Partnership for Peace and particularly uh, at EU level through PESCO. And could I kind of ask you to reflect on, on one other uh, dimension, which is our, our commercial interests and our commercial successes mm. and the fact that the Silicon Six are down on the docks. That also, that, that global success positions us in a different way to where we were in decades past. Um, it, it brings additional security interests, it brings additional unwanted interests potentially into Ireland. To what extent do you think those, that and the hybrid security uh, threats that you talk, are, are they resonating with the public? Do you think that these deep changes are, are really crystallising or is this a conversation that's happening just at elite level? Um. That, that, that's a good question because you know it's I, a hard. I, it's, 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 it's not it's, one with maybe it's, obvious it's, answer. Yeah, I know it's, it's it's summertime. The the, the, <laughs> the, the, the evenings are getting brighter, and I, I'm actually spending a little bit more time knocking on doors. Um, has anyone raised these matters with yeah. me on the doors? No, they haven't actually. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not they're not thinking about them. Um, and while I don't have an evidential basis or an anecdotal basis to back this up, um, my my sense is that. Um, you know, is that people understand that we're we're part we're, we're a very globalized country that's yeah. part of a globalized world now. And you know, what people would talk to me about uh, is is the refugee and migration crisis. And you know, for the first time really in our history, um, a war somewhere else has resulted in um, a migration crisis in Ireland. You know, like I remember, grew up in Blanchetown. I remember the Bosnians arriving. I remember the Kosovars. Mm -hmm. Um, my mum would have told me about the people who came from Vietnam, like it was a couple of hundred people. Yep. You know, it, it really was was uh, very manageable. And what we've seen in Ukraine, um, and the number of Ukrainians who've been welcomed here, I think people, if they if, if they understand it, they might understand it more through that prism. That yep. uh, you know, there's no such thing as as a faraway conflict between people of which we know yep. nothing. They're they're here in, in our communities, and if we don't take European and global security seriously, um, we're, we're going to have many more horrors like this. And this is this is one of the challenges, obviously, that has uh, been on the list um, for for the European Council for some time. Could I take you to your uh, time on on the uh, uh, on the European Council? What's it like to represent Ireland as Taoiseach? To to walk into a room? of prime ministers and presidents. Mm. We watch you on the six o'clock news and you say mm. hello to all the, uh, you know, Macron, you, they all know you. What's it like personally to walk into that room as the representative of Ireland at the very highest level? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a phenomenal experience actually because, you know, most of the time being Taoiseach is just a normal job, you know. 
you go to work, you read your emails. I'm you, not sure we really believe it. Is. No, you, you, you go to work, you go through your emails, you, you read the stuff in your inbox, you write speeches, you make speeches. You know, you know, it's it's not dissimilar to uh, public-facing jobs that lots lots of people have. But there are a few moments when you really feel this is different, um, and certainly the day you become Taoiseach is, is one. And then the next one for me was the day that I attended my first European Council meeting, and you walk into that big room, the huge big circular table. You go in alone, uh, so as a minister, you have officials and ambassadors accompanying you. Um, as prime minister, you don't. As head of government, you don't. Um, and nobody can deputise for you other than another head of government. So you can't you can't send the Thonishta or send the minister <laughs> for foreign affairs, which you can do for lots of lots of other things. Um, and that was an interesting innovation in the treaties to require that the head of government turns up or be represented by another country. So the odd time I've had to represent Cyprus or something like that, but you know. That, that's a rare, rare occasion. Uh, so you're in there, you're on your own, um, you're representing your country, and you look around the table and you see, you know, another normal person sitting there, Angela Merkel, uh, <laughs> Manuel Macron just over there, you, you know, three seats along, and then you really feel the enormous weight of responsibility that is on your shoulders, uh, that whether it's Brexit, whether it's um, protecting your corporate tax rate, it's down, to, it's down to you. You're, you're the one, only one in the room, and the only help you have is being able to send a text message or a WhatsApp to your, your officials <laughs> in the delegation room. And can I come back to where you started? Your relationships with other prime ministers, then European People's Party, but prime ministers mm. you've met in other fora, they have to be essential at that point, they, you know, in terms of building coalitions um, and, and supporting other uh, others as well. Um, is, is that something yeah. you particularly feel? Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of my first time in the European Council was dominated by Brexit. Yeah. Uh, so it was really important um, that we built up personal relationships and trust and understanding um, among other, other European countries of the Irish aspect of, yeah. of Brexit. Uh, and I, I think in, in that time, I probably visited almost every European capital um, and would have met one-to-one -one with almost every EU Prime Minister and that took a lot of time out, out of the diary, mm. probably at the expense of other, other important mm. issues, um, but I, I do think it made a difference and other things that made a difference was the fact that we took that strategic decision some time ago to have an embassy in every EU capital, that definitely paid off. Uh, some of them were one-person missions, now none of them are, they're, they're all two-person missions or, or more. Um, so, so you know that, that, that those kind of things they do um, they do make a difference, and the enormous solidarity that we felt uh, from our European partners um, really struck me. You know, I would have occasionally had warnings from some of my friends who yeah. would or people I'd be friendly with who would be um, uh, heads of government in other countries, but won't name anyone who would have said to me, you know, just be aware that there's there's an executive floor in this place and you might find out that the big countries have gone upstairs and ah. have sorted out the solution, you're going to find out what it is. Like that never happened. Um, nor did any pressure come on us um, to make concessions on other issues, for example, on, on, uh, on corporate tax. Now, as it happened, we followed a different process and took a different decision on that. Um, but that level of solidarity was pretty, pretty amazing and really helped confirm my belief um, that's far from small countries being trampled on in the European Union. Uh, actually, it gives European small countries a place at the table that they otherwise That was going have. to be my very next point, small country, big country dynamics. Uh, you know, could you reflect a little bit about what 
it has been like for Ireland to have that enormous voice amplified through the European Union. Um, to, to what extent ha have you particularly felt it in, in recent crises? Yeah, well, well like we, we do need to be realistic about it. We, we, we are a small country, uh, five million people, a big economy, but still a small economy in the greater scheme of things. Um, and, you, you know, obviously big countries like, like Germany and France and Italy and Spain carry more, more, weight, more weight than we do. So it's important to be realistic about that. Of course, that's, that's going to be the case. Um, like one thing we have done, uh, sort of recognising the fact that the UK is gone now and the UK would have been very like-minded with us on, on most issues, uh, is we, we've formed an informal group of um, Baltic, Nordic states, including the Netherlands as well, and we'll sometimes um, you know, try to coordinate a common position on things. And when seven or eight countries come together and have a common position on something, that then can carry the weight of Paris or carry the equal weight to Berlin. And, and you know, that will arise on certain issues. And I think, uh, I, I, I think, um, I think can work well. And what do you think Ireland's strengths are in those kind of rolling negotiations? Is there anything we bring to the table, particularly in terms of maybe our kind of national personality mm. or particular attachment to certain EU values, maybe our democratic tradition or kind of particularly respect for human rights? What, what do we bring um, to those kinds of partnerships? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the circumstances and it depends on the issue. You know, certainly on something like agricultural issues, we're very aligned with France and, and Belgium because they have large agricultural industries and beef industries. Um, so that's on kind of a micro level. I, I think if there's something particular about us uh, is that we are seen as being a European success story. Uh, so a country that has become economically prosperous, has become socially more progressive, and has had a peace process, uh, all of that aided by our European membership. And I think certainly countries in Central, East, Central and Eastern Europe would often see Ireland as uh, not necessarily an example to follow, but you know, a good example of a country that made the most of its EU membership. And if I could kind of pick up on that, that, that sense of Ireland as a European success story, that, that clearly resonates very strongly amongst uh, Irish people and support for membership of the European Union is very strong here, consistently over, over 50 years. And it's interesting how it diverged in the other two countries that joined with us in, in, 70, uh, in 73. And, and we've excellent research on, on this, including by the European movement over, uh, over many years. But some of that research also tells us that as Irish people, we don't always know an awful lot about uh, the European Union. So we, we actually have very good subjective knowledge. We think we know a lot, but actually us uh, academics, we ask these tricky yeah. little questions and, uh, you know, and then when we measure the objective knowledge, the, the picture kind of departs a little bit. Okay. And I want to ask you your view on that. Does it matter or is there a risk that that information asymmetry could pose to the kind of long-term stability of our, our relationship. Are, are we reading too much yeah, into it? I, 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 do read, I, I do read some of the research, yep. and may, maybe I'm, I'm wrong on this, and correct me if I am wrong, oh, but like, like my impression was that from the research that while Irish people wouldn't have a detailed understanding of the institutions or how they work, we'd be better than most, or we'd be kind of up there. Maybe that's not true, because I, I kind of thought the experience of the referendums 
make people more aware of the existence of things like the Parliament and the Commission and the Council, but maybe that's it, it, not, not true. We're about mid-table, but for, for an older member state, mm. if you compare us particularly to the people, yeah. uh, the other countries that kind of were, were founding members or, or are long-standing members, our knowledge levels aren't, aren't the best. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, it's, it's more, is that something that we should focus on more? Should we put more uh, attention into education mm. about the European Union? Um, there's a great deal of activity in universities, I can tell you that, but, but sh should, should we kind of consider greater investment or is it not something to really worry too much about when citizens are, are generally very favourable? No, no I, I, think it, I think it is important. To, in, you know, in, in, information is, is power and uh, the best antidote to disinformation and conspiracy theories is people having proper information and having uh, a foundation in the topic or the subject involved. So I know we do a bit now, like yeah. politics and CPSC is now, now part yeah. of the school curriculum. Um, I, I was an oddity, by the way, I actually did, I did an O-level, or GCSE in European studies when I was in... It's in, all uh, coming in, out uh, now, Taoiseach. In, in, in secondary school, for whatever reason, my, my school had, had uh, European studies as part of our transition year programme, and I did the GCSE in that. Um, but, um, but I know that's now more part of the regular curriculum. How, how we inform the general public a bit more, I just don't... Yeah, I, I just, I just don't know. And you know, I, I, you, people have busy yeah. lives and they have stuff going on in their lives. Like you know, a lot of people, and um, for obvious reasons, wouldn't necessarily have a detailed yeah. understanding of how the doll works and the Shannon works and how the government is separate from the doll and, and things like that. So, um, but I, I definitely think uh, it stands to, stands to reason to me that an informed public is. It's going to be much better than an uninformed public. I'm not sure it's something that other member states have cracked all that well either. Mm. I think it remains a challenge, um, but it's it's interesting to hear that we probably should spend more time on it. Um, to kind of abuse that Chinese proverb about living in interesting times, your inbox at the European Council has been extraordinary. Mm. I mean, Brexit, uh, COVID-19, uh, the war in Ukraine. You spoke earlier about some of the kind of European greats um, and, and what they had to negotiate, but but actually... The, the kinds of challenges that have faced uh, your European Council are, are really quite extraordinary. And, and if you add climate change in the background, um, you know that, that that's very you know very significant and kind of all pervasive as as well. Could, could I ask you, kind of, what learnings should we take away from how each of those challenges have been dealt with in turn as a country? What should we take away from Brexit? Well, as, as the as the Chinese would say, it's too, <laughs> yeah. soon, it's too soon. It's too soon to say. Millennium. <laughs> but um, I, 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 th I think on Brexit, certainly for, for us, our, our major objective was to make sure that if Brexit was going to happen, um, it would happen in a way that avoided a hard border between North and South and didn't harm our economy and the All Island economy. And I think I think we achieved that. Um, it involved negotiating three different governments, three different agreements with, with, with the British government through the EU, but I, th I think we have achieved that. Um, I, I hope in time the UK will uh, look to have a close relationship with the EU again. Maybe, they, maybe they'll never, never join again, but you know, the space for a close relationship, I, I hope that will happen, and that will solve a lot, a lot of other problems. Um, uh, and I do think um, that Ukraine you know, and the war in Ukraine will prove to be a seminal moment. Um, like I remember when the invasion happened and the general expectation at the time was that Ukraine would fall, uh, that, that the tanks would be in Kiev within weeks. Um, and Zelensky might be heading a government in exile and we'd be dealing with a very different scenario. And 
The most important thing, of course, was that um, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people said no and resisted the invasion. Uh, and then the UK, US and Europe came in very quickly behind them. Um, and I think, I think a line in the sand has been drawn uh, in Ukraine, which will prevent further aggression uh, on other EU member states. But that history is not, not yet written. Um, and then I do think the pandemic ha had kind of two effects. Um, one, countries started putting up borders again yep. and started imposing trade restrictions, um, you know, restrictions on the export and imports of certain goods and so on. Um, and thankfully it didn't work because had that actually been effective, then yep. we might have seen more of it. What, what was effective was not doing that and was the cooperation around procuring the vaccines, for example, and the medicines we needed. So hopefully that'll be, be a lesson uh, that comes out of the pandemic because um, it's fine if you're New Zealand, you know, but if you're Europe, closing your borders isn't going to work. And then secondly, um, uh, when we saw the export restrictions being, being put in place, that really worried me because, you know, it's the country that makes, makes the ventilators all the bits we put in the ventilators come from other countries, so the export restrictions were never, were never going to work. They were going to make things worse in the round. And do you think that has kind of filtered into kind of public debate and, and public evaluation of, of, um, uh, of the strengths and, and the values of Europe, particularly the vaccine mm. procurement and how well that worked within the European Union? Do you, do you think that's going to reside in, in public memory and, and hopefully kind of contribute to, to those kind of enduring strong supports for EU membership? Yeah, I, I hope so. Like, it does show the value of solidarity um, and also the value of the buying power of, of a market of 450 million people. Um, I think initially, though, that wasn't the case because, you know, the UK did kind of steal a march on us and, and they had the AstraZeneca vaccine first and Israel had Pfizer first. Um, so I think initially, no, but within weeks or months, um, Europe proved to be in a very strong position. And can you imagine, if, if, can you imagine the counterfactual? Um, you know, Ireland competing with Germany, yep. uh, Slovenia competing with Italy, Poland competing with Spain for, um, for, for, for vaccines or for medicines or ventilators. Um, they would have yeah. cost a lot more and we'd have, we would have got them a lot later. Yeah, and, and, and the sacrifice in terms of yeah. human life would have been... Yes, you know, it would have been higher. Yep. Uh, Tijuk, uh, we're going to draw to a close, but I have a little rapid-fire round at the very end. Uh, where's your favourite EU country to go on your summer holidays? Uh, Greece. I love Greece. Oh, very nice. And, Spain too. And uh, now, if you were going on a city break, Tijuk, where would you go in Europe? I always love to go somewhere I haven't been yet. So, okay. Um, By the sounds of it, that could be difficult still, for you no, at this stage. Still, I, I, I've, I've seen Europe by capitals, mostly, and there's so many, so many beautiful you know, other cities I haven't been to. So the European political community will meet in Granada later this year. Oh, so very, I'm really looking oh, forward to nice. that. And Chisinau, which I haven't been to uh, next week. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of cities, I, I, I just love Barcelona. It has everything. And an EU food, if you had to pick one? Favourite food? <laughs> These are hard questions at the very end, yeah. you know. Mm. Okay, it depends on the time of year. Yeah, it, it well? be delicate now. Can't uh, can't offend any yeah. of the great uh, culinary nations of of Europe. Yeah, again, I'm going back to amazing proper tapas. Oh, there we somewhere, go. Somewhere, Spaniards somewhere, are really winning out here. In Barcelona or somewhere else in Spain, looking out on the 
blue sea and the beach. <laughs> you get the theme here. Exactly. <laughs> and Taoiseach, we're, we're all friends here. Uh, if there was a top European job on the horizon that you had to identify as one that you might think would be very interesting, uh, is there, there anything that stands out for you? Happy to confirm that I've no interest in, uh, in the European Taoiseach, job. Taoiseach, it's been I'm a great pleasure speaking with you this morning. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining us. Thank you.